Amen. You know, after uh, <clears throat> further reflection, I've come to believe that the Connections team had a hit list of people that it wanted to eliminate from the congregation and from congregational life. And I know how I got on that list, probably, you know, but I'm not sure how some of those other poor people got on the list. Um, but I also know that their, their attempts have failed. We turned out to be a, uh, a tenacious group, and uh, we are here this morning despite those things. One thing I do, uh, do know, though, at this point, that if you weren't there yesterday, it will never happen again. <laughs> what exists on video is all there will ever be. So, uh, so you can catch up that way and enjoy, but um, so I say, the one and the only. Uh, it was fun while it lasted, sort of, but not really. Um, <clears throat> oh my, I am also grateful to the Connections team, Josh and Paula and Debbie and Cheryl and all the hard work and planning that they put into uh, to a really fun picnic. Um, We've been going through a series on eight things that we need to believe if we're going to be unashamed of the gospel. If we're going to be unashamed witnesses, ambassadors for Christ in this world, there are things that we need to believe. And one of them that we come to this morning, the fourth on our list, is, that, is this, that we need to believe that the harvest is plentiful. You know, that, that there is a harvest, and it's not small, and, and that God has himself ordained a great harvest and that we are part of that. So we come this morning to Matthew chapter 9, a pretty familiar passage to many of us, but let's look at it again with uh, particular uh, eyes and hear what the Lord might say to us. My goal this morning is simply this, to capture your minds and your imagination, to believe and to know that the harvest is plentiful um, and that God is doing something great and marvelous, and he's doing it through his church We're in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 8, the last few verses of that chapter. Hear then the word of God. And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do come this morning, as always, to sit at your feet and to learn of you. And our desire is that you would speak to us this morning about your harvest For you are the Lord of the harvest, and you are the one who is building your church. And so, Father, would you speak to us this morning, capture our imagination about this great kingdom that you are advancing in the world, the great harvest that you are bringing to yourself, that we might enter in fully as an answer to our own prayers, that you would provide laborers in this harvest. So, Father, we come this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We're told he goes throughout all of the cities and all of the villages of Judea. uh, And uh, he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Teaching in their synagogues. Proclaiming that the kingdom has come. 
calling the world to faith in himself. But he's not only teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming that the kingdom has come, he is, he is demonstrating it. He's demonstrating it the way that he's healing every disease and every affliction. In other words, he is touching people's lives in practical, healing, reconciling ways so that the gospel is going forth, not just in word, but in deed, that they can not only hear that the kingdom is coming, but they can see that the kingdom is coming in the way that he is working in people's lives in a very practical way. The gospel comes in word and deed. And as Jesus is pushing this ministry forward in his own life, and he is passing this ministry on to his disciples, even in this passage and throughout his ministry, as he is doing this, we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart. As he is doing this ministry, he gives us a glimpse of what it is that motivates him in this life and ministry. He surveys this crowd of people. You know, crowds formed around and followed Jesus pretty much everywhere he went, in every town. And when we did Zacchaeus, you know, he's coming into town, and it says the crowds were so great along lining the streets, he had to climb a tree just to get a, a glimpse of Jesus. So these crowds, they form and they follow him wherever he goes. And so he has this crowd, I don't know if he is on a hillside or something, where he just gets a... a, a you know, some kind of a, a, a view of this crowd that's following him, or if it's just in that moment, the way uh, the Father and the Spirit and the Son and the way they, he works in his heart, but he sees the crowds. And there is this, this moment of impact that it seems on, on Christ, on our Savior, by his view, that, this view of the masses that confronts him, this one who came to seek and to save the lost, is struck by the spiritual poverty of the the crowd that is following him, that is forming around him, seeking to know who he is and asking questions and wanting to know what is going on. He sees this crowd and he's struck by their spiritual poverty. And it says he had compassion on them. When he saw the crowds in verse 36, he had compassion for them. We know that, that word you've been Many of you, anyway, have been told many times that when it says that he had compassion, it literally means that he is, that he is moved in his stomach. You know, and this is where that old-fashioned expression comes from, the bowels of mercy, if you've heard that expression. It comes from this ancient idea, an ancient language and culture, that when you are impacted by something, when you, you feel something, you know, they attribute it down here in the gut. You know, he had compassion on them. He literally felt compassion, he was moved, he was touched, he was, he was impacted in a powerful way, deeply affected. And he says that, it, that, that this is because he sees the crowds and he sees that they are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You know, I hear that harassed and, and the helpless, I, in my head anyway, I get the image of a turtle on its back, right? It's one of those, you know, he's as vulnerable as can be, and if nobody helps them, things aren't going to change real soon. You know, I don't know. I've never seen a turtle right itself, but maybe. But there's that he is harassed. I'm sure he is not, you know, that, and he's helpless. You know, Jesus uses a different image, an image that's familiar to his crowd and to his people, um, which is that of, a, of sheep without a shepherd, kind of like a turtle on its back, vulnerable, and helpless. And sheep are like that when they don't have a shepherd. You've got to picture sheep alone in the wild. 
you know, undomesticated, I guess, out in the wild, but alone, no shepherd, no protection. And a sheep alone in the wild is doomed. They're not very fast. Apparently, they're not very smart. They don't have any horns. They're at the bottom of the food chain. And so this word harassed is something like to be harassed. Actually, in there, it talks of, it's this image of being torn or ripped or in some way, uh, you know, uh, negatively affected either by thorns or predators or so that they are harassed. They're, they're, they're being torn at, torn apart even. They're, they're, they're harassed and they're helpless. They're vulnerable. Vulnerable to danger, ultimately to death, being consumed by their environment. Jesus looks at this crowd and he gets his glimpse and in this moment, right, he is deeply heartbroken and impacted and moved by their spiritual condition. Because that's what he's talking about. These are people who may have had it all together. They may be merchants. They may be, you know, whoever they are. He's not, he's not looking at a crowd that is, that is laying on stretchers or in hospital beds. He's looking at a crowd of people and he's speaking to their spiritual condition. He is heartbroken on where they are spiritually. So much so that he will die for us. Even his death on the cross. But from his vantage, looking out over the crowds, he is moved. And in in this movement, in this feeling, in this sense of spiritual poverty and concern for lost people, he says we, in the first sermon, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And here he, he confronts his lost crowd, and he is broken by it. And so he says to his church, he speaks in verse 37, and he, he says to his church, to the disciples who are with him at this moment, he says, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Look at the crowds. But the workers are few. The laborers are few. Most sermons then focus on verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. And it's a great missions message. And it's a very appropriate message, hopefully one that you've heard once or more than once as we come to this text. And pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth. And so whether we, whether we go and we are the laborers who go or whether we're the prayers and the givers and the senders, you know, that we enter in, that we seek the Lord of the harvest, that he would raise up laborers, certainly in foreign fields. You know, to go to the far corners, to Acapulco, to Russia, to Africa, to those, all the places where we support missionaries and we, we do pray and we give and we send. And it's a great sermon and it's a great message. We are Christ's ambassadors. But I get this sense as he, as he says this, it, for me, it's a, because we should be the answer to our own prayer. You know, pray the Lord of the harvest as he's speaking to his church, his disciples who are gathered around him looking at the vast harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers. There's a very real sense when they're the answer to their own prayers, aren't they? They're, they're sent. And as they go, you know, we are sent. And so it's this, this trickle down. But you get a sense here almost of an Uncle Sam poster, right? The Uncle Sam with his finger putting out, you know, wants you. Right? And Jesus is saying, we pray for these, these harvests, and he's talking to us. He's talking to his church, he's, and he's talking to his disciples. We are the answer to that prayer. 
And we need to wrestle through what that looks like for us as his ambassadors, whether we're ambassadors here where we live, work, and play, or whether God might just be calling us. Has he called you know, the Mullins to Acapulco, and has he called the Napiers as they moved to North Carolina, but for him to work around the globe in ministry, how he calls from amongst us. Maybe it's you he's got his hand on. Maybe he's calling you in some uh, unique ministry. But I want to turn and focus on, back on verse 37, on the bold and optimistic statement of Jesus as he, as he motivates them for this ministry. What is the motivation? What is it that they need to believe to, be the, to pray that prayer and to be the answer to their own prayer? What do they need to believe is this, that what Jesus says in 37 is true. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is abundant. The, lar- the harvest is great. It's huge. It's big. It's, it's something that is going to require more, more workers. You know, I'm going to tie this in at the end, but just go with me on this one. It also reminded me as I was writing this, as Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, you know, this is going to require more laborers. I don't know if you've ever seen the old movie Jaws back in the day when, uh, when the, the, the police chief is on the back of the boat chumming into the water and Jaws surfaces. And for the first time, they get a, he gets a glimpse of this shark, which is larger than the boat they're on. And he sees it as he does it and he just backs up into the wheelhouse and he looks at the guy and he says, you're going to need a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger boat. Jesus says, the harvest is great. He glimpses with the eyes of faith. That we'll talk about here in a second. He glimpses with the eyes of faith this harvest. And he says, we're going to need more laborers. We're going to need more harvesters. It's going to take, it's going to take more, more uh, harvest. Uh, <clears throat> it's going to take a bigger, <clears throat> excuse me. It's going to take a bigger team of harvesters to make this happen. Why? Because God, in his intentions, is great. And John helps us to see this when he gives us a glimpse in Revelation, as God gives us a glimpse in Revelation. It's there under the first point in your outline in the bulletin. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we get these glimpses into heaven, a glimpse into what God is accomplishing. What do you, you know, we get a glimpse in the end result of what we're involved in now. You know, what God is doing now in and through his church and all of this. And we glimpse, and this is what he's about. This is the end result. It says, worthy are you, that is Lord Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, from across the face of the globe, which is, a, which is a ministry that started with the coming of Christ and is, and is going on today. We are still reaching unreached peoples, tribes and nations and languages and tongues where the gospel has not been heard. It has not been preached. Worthy are you, Lord, because you have redeemed people from all of those people groups. You have done this work. And so in Revelation 7, 9, next in your bulletin there, he says this, And after this I looked, and behold... There was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and the peoples and the languages of the earth. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they were clothed in white. A ransomed people of God, right? A harvest that he says, a great multitude that no one can number. 
Right? Is this not what Jesus is glimpsing when he looks out and he's moved in compassion and he says, the harvest is great. Right? And this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is just the beginning of, a, of something, you know, of, of a building of a church that is going to take generation and millennia even as, as God in this great in-gathering of his people through generations so that there is a great multitude that no one can number gathered from across the globe. God's plan and purpose to save is vast. He will have a plentiful harvest. And so Jesus looks out and he sees these crowds. And he sees them not as a threat, but as an opportunity. An opportunity that's going to require more help. Right? And, and I've said this in Sunday school today, and I've said it many times in here, and I think it's something the church has to overcome. If we're going to be engaged as bold and unashamed evangelists, witnesses for Christ and sharing our faith, is, is that we, gotta, we have to move away from the us and them mentality. We have to move away from that, you know, it's us versus the world or that those who are out there, you know, building our walls. Jesus looks at these crowds and he says, there's vast opportunity here. Sown within this whole thing, there is a vast harvest to be brought in, right? And that God will do, God is going to do this work. And we see it starting at Pentecost and in the generations that have come with tens and hundreds of millions to Billions even of Christians. Jesus sees them not as a threat, but an opportunity. The the fields contain a great harvest. And this is one of the things that you and I need to believe. If we're going to be bold and unashamed laborers in this harvest, we have to believe that the harvest is plentiful. We have to believe that outside of our doors and in the midst of the crowds are those whom God will bring to himself are those whom God will save and, and bathe them, as it says here, that, that they were uh, ransomed by his blood and that they stood before the throne of the Lamb clothed in white. And in the midst of the crowds, <laughs> they're there. They're there. God is a missionary God, right? And these are the last three sermons. God is a missionary God. Right, that he has come in the person of Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost. He is a seeking God. Right? He is a God who comes, a missionary God. He is a God who sends. And so the gospel then is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who will believe. The gospel is the power that God will use to raise people spiritually from the dead. The gospel is the power to bring them in. It's the reaping, threshing you know, implement that, that God has given us to use. Through the foolishness of what is preached, they are saved. I was saved. You are saved. Because the gospel is the power of God. And so we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, through this, this treasure that he has placed in jars of clay. Making his appeal to the lost world. It's who we are. As followers of Christ and part of the new creation as his ambassadors. God is a seeking God who has chosen the gospel as the means of salvation for the multitudes and he has made us his ambassadors and then he proclaims to us and he tells us the harvest is great. It's plentiful. It's abundant. It's rich. And on that day, there will be a great multitude that no one can number. 
He says the harvest is plentiful because the fields are ripe. They're ripe for the picking. God is gathering a people there in your bulletin under the second point. The fields are ripe. We read in John chapter 4, Jesus says this, Do not say there are yet four months or then comes the harvest. He says, I tell you, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see it right now. The fields are white for the harvest. And when it says they're white for the harvest, it means they're ripe, they're ready. Don't say four months off. Don't say it's a later time. Don't say it's still coming. He says, Jesus says, with my coming, with my standing here in your midst, the fields, lift up your eyes. Realize that it's true. The fields are ripe right this minute for the harvest. Look, I tell you, already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and he's gathering the fruit for eternal life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the harvest has already begun. It began with his coming. It began with him going village to village, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. It, it, it began with Jesus coming in, in not only in what he says, but in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ as the coming of his kingdom. Jesus is saying the harvest has already began. In the first coming of Christ, it began what we call the last days. You see in your bulletin under the second point, Acts chapter 2, Peter says this is the day of Pentecost. He's explaining to the crowds there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. People are speaking in tongues. People are praising God in languages uh, from all around the globe. And they're living up this cacophony of voices in all the human languages of the world, praising God such that the crowds around them say, what's going on? And I hear these guys speaking my language and I hear them What's going on? Are these people drunk? Are they, you know, what's, explain this. And Peter explains it. And this is how he explains it. He explains it by quoting Joel chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the last days it shall be. Peter is saying that these are the last days. That what they are experiencing in the outpouring of that spirit, which Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait because you will receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Spirit, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here is this outpouring of the Spirit. And Peter says, this is the beginning of the, the end. This is the beginning of the last days, the last age that runs between his first coming and his second coming, where in his first coming he comes as a savior to give himself for us. And in the second coming, he comes as king and judge to bring all things to a conclusion. Hebrews chapter 1, he says this, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. In these last days that have begun, with the coming of the Lord Jesus, with coming of King Jesus, proclaiming his kingdom, laying down his life. The heir of all things is gathering his inheritance. The harvest and the fields are white and ready. John 6, he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. In these last days, the great ingathering has begun of a great global people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue, 
prophesied by the prophets, shown in the life, in the ministry and teaching of Jesus, and pictured in the revelation on the last day. When I was 17, I was not a Christian. I came to Christ when I was 18. When I was 17, I was not a Christian and I didn't go to church. I had no interest in spiritual things. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I had interest in everything except spiritual things. I was involved in everything that somebody who doesn't know Christ and isn't involved in the church and isn't interested in... I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't have any of the foundation or any of that teaching. You know, so somebody who grows up in the world without Christ doesn't, in some ways, doesn't know any better apart from conscience. I had no moral boundaries. I was involved in everything I shouldn't. I was a, I was a bad kid. I was a bad, if you would have looked on me, I was one of those kids that if you would have looked at him, you would have said, there's no hope for him. Move on to the next guy. Move on to the next guy. He's, he's, because I was one of those involved in every, all the wrong things. I was in your face about it. I was, I was, I was a bad kid. I was lost. You would have said he's too far gone. He's a hard case. No one had ever shared the gospel with me. I didn't know any Christians. Didn't know any believers that went to church. No one had ever told me, not even, I would, I would say, not even my church, the one that we went to on Christmas and Easter sometimes. I'd never heard it. I was heading 120 miles an hour in the wrong direction. And one day, interestingly, at the age of 17, I found an old dog-eared paperback New Testament in my closet. And I started reading it. Don't ask me why. Because I didn't read anything for my English class. I didn't read anything for, I told you, I was, I was moving all in the wrong direction. I was doing everything wrong. I don't know. I, in one way, you'd have to look back and say, there's no earthly reason why I started reading the Bible that I found in my closet. <clears throat> when by night and by day, I was doing all of those things. And then I would open it up and just start reading. I started in Matthew and read through all the Gospels. I started taking it to, to work with me. And in the back room, when I should have been working, I was reading the New Testament. And I actually started memorizing it. I actually started, some of the things were just striking me in ways. I, so here I'm reading it. I'm, I'm memorizing parts of it. I'm struck by the stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading about Jesus and his demand for faith. And this intrigues me as, he, as I read his life and the things that he says as he calls these people to go and sin no more and brings healing into their lives and speaks truth in ways I'd never, never heard of it. He was rocking my world. And the girl that I had met at this time invited me to church for the first time. She invited me to a, a Pentecostal Assemblies of God evangelical church. And for, so at the age of uh, 18, I went. And the very first time I heard the gospel preached, the very first time that, that pastor laid it out, I accepted it. I put my faith in Christ, <clears throat> and I embraced him. And I, at the age of 18, and, and, uh, and I never have looked back. God has worked in my life, and he's brought me to this place. But here's the thing I want you to see. The Spirit had prepared my heart in a way that's hard to explain. He had already convicted me of my sin without one preacher, one Christian, one person telling me a thing, just reading through the Gospels in the New Testament. I was convicted of my sin and, and longing to be forgiven as Jesus talked about. I didn't want to die in my sin. I knew that was a, Jesus said, unless you believe I am who I say I am, you will die in your sins. And one thing I knew is that I didn't want that to happen. He had prepared my heart in such a way. All, you know, I was like a, I don't know, a bubble or a balloon that was blown up and stretched to its absolute limit. 
So all you had to do is touch it and the thing popped. Right? And that was me. I was spiritually, God had just done that work so that the first time somebody touched me with the gospel, I accepted Christ and I came to him. And I believe in his sovereign working in my life. When I was going, you know, all you had to do was explain it to me and invite me, and I accepted it. And here's the thing. There was nothing special about me. In fact, quite the opposite. I was not a spiritual prodigy. I was not seeking. I was not church going. I was not even a good person. In fact, I was a very bad person. But God was at work. By his spirit, in my heart, through his word, in the way that God does what he does, he had prepared me. I believe there are people, a lot of people like me in the world, where God is at work. And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says the harvest is plentiful. God is at work. We see these testimonies. And how God uses just the faithful witness of someone who is loving enough and bold enough and sacrificial enough to give of his time to to love people. And you see how they in so many ways are prepared by God, by his word and by the spirit. And, you know, that that young man took several touches, you know, in terms of where I was. I mean, God had been working over with me for a long time. I had read pretty much the entire New Testament and was memorizing parts of it by the time a minister actually told me the gospel and, and I could repent of my sin and trust in Christ and know myself to become his child. And so there are many, they may take many touches. Not everyone is ready to pop like I was, you know, but some are. I mean, you find those people who are just saying, tell me. You know, it's one of sometimes those days, tell me, what's different about how do I get to know? I'm curious, and there are those, and, but there's so many different. What I needed was someone to explain it to me, to call it to me, to call me to faith. And what I'm saying is, God is at work. I feel like I'm Lydia when I read Acts chapter 16 and it talks about Paul's ministry. In Acts 16, he comes to Lydia, who's a seller of purple, of dyed garments, and and it says this about her. It says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. The Lord was at work and opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And I feel like that's me. You know, Paul found Lydia, found that God was already at work in her heart, already opening it up, already making her sensitive to listen and pay attention to what Paul said. And it wasn't because Paul was eloquent. It wasn't because Paul was smart. It wasn't because he was educated or this. It wasn't because Paul was... In fact, many times Paul says, I came to you with weakness. You know, I came to you, I wasn't eloquent. I was simply faithful to the calling. And God, but God is at work, and that's the thing. The harvest is plentiful, not because we are great at doing, you know, evangelism, not because we have anything in ourselves. The harvest is great because God is a great God, and he is Lord of the harvest. And so 1 Corinthians 3, 7, last under your second point there, it says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. And he's talking about him, Paulos and himself. You know, they were getting all about, well, Paulos taught us and Paul taught us. And he's like, look, you guys, we're nothing. Only God gives the growth. Only God gives the growth. God makes things grow. 
He's chosen for whatever reason to use the foolishness of what is preached and the words that tumble from our lips and, and, the, and the blundering attempts that we make as we witness for Christ. But God makes them growth. Only God can make things, you know, in other words, only God can make the fields ripe unto harvest. And he says, I've done that. Lift up your eyes and see the harvest is great. Nothing is more encouraging, nothing is more emboldening for us to be unashamed witnesses for Christ is to believe that God is at work outside of these doors, that he is at work in people's hearts, that he's opening blind eyes, that he is softening hard ground, that he is, that he is helping people to be prepared for those times and, and for us to enter their life at some stage in that chain of perhaps of salvation. In that moment to speak a word in season, that would bring them to faith. See, the last thing Jesus says in verse 38, is not only are we to pray, but who are we to pray to? We're to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And he's to send out laborers into his harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest, and the harvest is his. He says, he's not telling us, pray to the farmer. Pray to the farmer and hope that there is some kind of, you know, that all the conditions are right. You know, pray that there's rain and pray that there's sunshine and pray that there's, pray that it's not too cold and we don't get a cold snap and it will break, you know, and pray. You know, hope that all the conditions are, he's Lord of the harvest. He didn't say pray for all those things. He prayed, Lord of the, pray to the Lord of the harvest, send enough laborers out there to harvest what's already ripe. It's his harvest. And he is the one, just said, who makes things grow. He is the one who brings about all the fruitfulness. He's not a fretful landowner wringing his hands, hoping the conditions will be right and hoping that his harvest won't fail and hoping that enough people will say yes, that what he says in Revelation about a great multitude will be true. Pray to the curios to the Lord of the harvest, to El Shaddai, to the Lord Almighty. Because when he sows, he does not fail to reap. And when his word goes forth, it does not return to him void. It accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish. In Isaiah 45, 23, there in your bulletin under the last point, he says, by myself, that is by Almighty God, by the Lord and creator of all things, by the creator of every human being that exists on the face of the planet, I, Lord, creator, sovereign one, swear by myself. My mouth has gone, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word. And it will not return. That is, it will not return to me void. It will not fall down unfulfilled. It will be fulfilled. I've sworn it by my own uncreated nature my sovereign being I've sworn that to me every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance it will happen interestingly just when you get into the doctrine of the trinity in the new testament in the deity of Christ this passage is applied to Jesus here it is spoken of Yahweh the uncreated creator in the new testament it says Jesus is kurios Jesus is the Lord, and before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and it will be the fulfillment of this passage, as the Father and the Son are one. Let 
Let me just end with this <clears throat> last passage, changing the metaphor. Well, no, I want to touch on, oh, I didn't want to touch on the passage with Peter, with you need a bigger boat. Um, isn't this the message when you look at the, the story of the calling of Peter? And Jesus shows up on the shore, and Peter's cleaning his nets, and, and, and he doesn't want to fish anymore. And Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And he's like, all right, because you asked me to. And he does, right? And he throws it out on the side of the boat, and what happens? The nets are so full of fish that another boat has to come and help them, and they haul it up. And as they're hauling it up, they, they load the fish into both boats to take the load. And then there, Luke 5, 7, it says this, they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. I'm sure Peter looked at the rest and said, we're going to need bigger boats. Why? Because the harvest is great. You know, there, there's too many. Um, and, and what does Jesus say right after this? I'm going to make you fishers of men. Right? It's a word about the harvest. Right? It's that, that, that incoming of fish. First of all, it wasn't an accident that the nets were full of fish. And it wasn't on the parts of the fish that they had all said, let's swim into the nets. It wasn't because they were great fishermen that the fish were in the net. Why did all of those fish fill the nets so that their harvest was so great that they need bigger boats? It's because Jesus is Lord of the harvest. And the fields are ripe when he says so. It is his harvest. And he says, get this picture in your mind of boats sinking under the weight of the harvest. And he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. The fields are ripe unto harvest, and I'm going to make you a harvester. How can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, this is my ministry. I am plundering the strong man's house. And I invite you in because the plunder is great. The harvest is great. You are my ambassadors. So Paul says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will open the door that the mystery of Christ would be proclaimed and that there would be fruitfulness. God opens doors. God prepares hearts. God fills nets. God builds his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. God has a harvest and he is Lord of it. And on that day there will be a great multitude that no one can number. So let us open our mouths boldly and unashamedly to speak this gospel and to see his fruitfulness. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that you are indeed Lord of the harvest and that you have, you have indeed made us part of that harvest. We stand here this morning as those who worship you because you have worked in our hearts and you have brought us to Christ. Father, we thank you for what you are doing in the world. And we pray that you would give us, capture our imagination with the advancing of a kingdom, the reaping of a harvest, the bringing in, the fishers of men bringing in nets overflowing, that we need bigger boats, that we would be faithful answers to the prayer. Lord of the harvest, send forth laborers into your harvest. Help us, Father, to respond saying, here am I, send me. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.